Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Good morning, guys. We're going to camp out in Philippians chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and start moving over there, and I'll make a couple of comments while you're moving, whether you got your Bible or your app or whatever, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, and, and, and first of all, let me just say, Saturday morning crowd, you guys are the faithful. That Thursday morning crowd, that's easy. They've got to go to work. You guys, it's Saturday. You get one day a week to sleep in. No, not you. You're faithful. So I just want to say thank you. That's good. That's encouraging to me. Um, let's see, there's something else I was going to, oh, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've listened to the messages that have been done in this Philippians series, and, and I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just grateful these guys asked me to come, and I'm humbled to be able to, because there, we have great communicators here at this church, wouldn't you agree? It's, so anytime you, anytime you step on a stage, or you get a classroom or something, they, they ask you, you know, it, it's, 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 it's a little humbling. It's a little intimidating because they're just such great communicators. So I, I'm, I'm just grateful to be asking to, to kind of be here. Um, I, I think it's a little bit ironic. My topic here is true contentment. True contentment. It, I, th- that's kind of ironic from this perspective. What time of year are we in? And so how many kids or grandkids are you, are you think right now are really contented with all the things that they have in life? No, right? You know, they're asking for everything else that marketing has told them to ask for. Since created some discontent. So it's just kind of funny. Here we are at this time of year talking about true contentment. So let me ask you this. Louisville fans, 2 and 10, you content? I got to give a shout out to my brother wearing a Purdue shirt back here in the corner, loud and proud. He's sticking it in the face of every Louisville fan in the room. <laughs> Bro, way to go. That's courage. Lock the door, man. <laughs> Kentucky fans, 9 and 3, you content? <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. Alabama wouldn't be. Where are you? <laughs> Gosh, I didn't see that hat. Whew. Here's the only thing I know. Kentucky fans, here's why you're content. You won the state championship again. You're good, right? Create true contentment. You could have been, you know, 3-11 and 11 or 3-8, and eight, and you'd have still been content because you won the state championship. So. You guys got to wake up, okay? Give me a little feedback here. <laughs> I realize it's the warm-up uh, warm material, but here we go. You know, finding true contentment, we're going to dive in. It's really tough in this culture, isn't it? It's, it's really tough. And I'm, going to, I'm, I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert. I could probably make this next statement and then we could, we could be done for the day. You guys could talk around your tables and you'd have enough just on this next statement to be able to talk about for a long time. Because here's the question, a spoiler alert. Are you content? Spoiler alert, is he enough? Is he enough? He being Jesus. That's why we gather here, guys. That's why we come to Man Challenge. We come to Man Challenge so that what we can do is we can figure out in our own hearts and in our own lives how can we dive in and become more like him, take on his character, and allow him to be all that he died to be in our lives, right? So my question on contentment, is he enough? You're going to end up talking about that question in some form or another around your tables when we're finished. But that's the question of the day. Is he enough? Contentment. 
When you're trying to fill space when you're preparing for a Bible study, here's one clue you can do. You know, you look at the Bible, of course, we're going to talk about But you go to the dictionary and you define words. We're going to define the word contentment. So the first definition I have is from the Oxford Dictionary, and it says this. It's a state of happiness and satisfaction. A state of happiness and satisfaction. I looked in the Urban Dictionary, which can be dangerous, and it gave me a couple of definitions I thought were pretty good. One of them was contentment, the Urban Dictionary. The state of mind you reach when you look at your life and all its imperfection, and you say, good enough. Good enough. You know, I, I don't know about you, but, it, but me, in our culture, the way that I was raised, the way that I kind of grew up in my, my adult life, good enough was never good enough. That sounds like mediocre to me. And that's not what we're taught to strive for. But, but that's what this Urban Dictionary says. That's a definition of contentment. Here's another one it says. It says, contentment is true peace of mind and has absolutely nothing to do with external pleasure or condition, but rather your attitude. Rather your attitude. Now, I like that one. That one I like. Because Paul the Apostle, in a moment when we look at Philippians, he agrees with that definition. So I really do like that one. It has nothing to do with your external circumstances. But it does have to do with your attitude. And your attitude has a whole lot to do with where are your eyes. What am I looking at in terms of my standard of measure? All right, we're going to take just a couple minutes, guys. I want you to talk around your tables. And I want you to answer this question. And don't take very long. Do not... Do not editorialize. Do not try to explain your answer. Just give a number. Here's the deal. We're gonna, you got a scale, scale of 1 to 10. 10 being I'm absolutely, unbelievably content. Nothing could be better. I am satisfied. 1 being, well, not so much. All of us are somewhere on that scale. So go around the table and just give your number. Don't explain it. Just, Thursday morning crowd didn't get that. They started talking. Just give a number, okay? We're on limited time. Ready? Go. You guys got it. You did it. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for repeating the Thursday morning experience. <laughs> All right. Let's look in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at, at uh, verses 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 13. Okay. Now, Philippians, as you know, was written by the Apostle Paul, who was at one time Saul of Tarsus. We were introduced to him in the book of Acts. And when we're introduced to him, he's an angry elf. Right? He's on this road, this road to Damascus, it's called, in, in Acts. And here, what his job is at that time, he's a Pharisee, so he's kind of a priestly guy, right? And he's going after people who have come to the risen Christ called Christians, and he wants to persecute them, put them in prison, put them on death row. That's how we're introduced to him. His name was Saul. And God saw this guy and God says, there's something about him I just like. And God recruits him. Recruits him in a rather dramatic fashion and, you know, knocks him down, blinds him and so forth to where Saul has to say, who are you, Lord? And, and so on. You can read that in the book of Acts. But it's just interesting to me that here's a guy who's getting ready to write a passage on contentment. But when we're first introduced to him in scripture, he's anything but. He's got this fire to rid himself of these people that are causing him personal problems, right? That's his job. 
So let's jump in and see what he writes in Philippians here, starting in verse 10. I'm going to read the whole passage, 10 through 13. Then I'm going to come back and we're going to kind of walk verse by verse for a moment and then pull some truths out of it, okay? Verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. That's a real interesting passage for another reason. You guys know, those of you who've been coming, where was Paul writing this from? He was in prison, right? Ronnie did a really good job of describing the conditions in prison a couple weeks ago. So he's writing this from prison. Here's what I find really ironic. Here's a guy who we're introduced to in the book of Acts whose sole goal in life is to take Christians and put them in prison. He was coming from a position of not being content prior to him coming to Christ and he's putting people in prison. And ironically, here we are in the book of Philippians. He's in prison, and now he's a different guy. He's totally content. Did you find that ironic? And the reason that he was able to make that switch was because of one relationship. Jesus. Changed everything. Is he enough? Because the apostle Paul even had his name changed from Saul to Paul. The Apostle Paul answered that question in his life, is he enough, Jesus? And the answer is yes, because Jesus comes into our world to change everything, even from discontent to content. So you got to deal with that, guys. I have to deal with that. This one relationship can change me from my lack of contentment to a place of contentment. Let's break this scripture down. In verse 10, he says this, says, you renewed your concern for me. Let me translate that for you. If you drop down into verses 14 through 18, you find out that what he's talking about is they've made some sort of a financial contribution to him. Philippian, the Philippian people have contributed to Paul's ministry. And he said, hey, you have helped me. You, you, you didn't have to do that, but you did that. And not that that's what it's all about. So I also love that, the fact that this is the subtlety of how precise God is when he writes scripture. God knew that you and I in this Western culture, the way we would interpret contentment has a lot to do with our financial position. And we're going to talk about that in just a second, but it does. Because that's the world that we live in, right? And so he uses this scripture that Paul anchors in on in terms of contentment. He starts out saying, hey, thanks. You've, you've given me something of substance, something of, of value. Okay. In verse 11, Paul says, I've learned to be content. Right. He said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content. What are the circumstances? Is? And, and one of the things that we can see, we're going to see it reiterated in just a second. I've learned to be content means it's a process. You don't just wake up one morning and suddenly, hey, I'm content. Anybody? No, it's a process. It's something you've got to work at. Anything that you, uh, uh, let me drop this little nugget because it, I think it's really, really relevant here. We spend most of our lives, guys, trying to find, feather our nest and try to run from the pain that's in our lives rather than embrace it. But here's the interesting thing about that. As I read the New Testament, man, there's a ton about suffering in that thing. 
I, I mean, it seems to me that every time I open it up, I'm reading about somebody suffering and overcoming through Christ. That's what stands out to me. A few weeks ago, I was at a meeting with a bunch of guys that do what I do in churches that are, that are our size around the nation. And we happened to be at Saddleback Church, which is the church that Rick Warren pastors. And Rick wrote, wrote that book, Purpose Driven Life. And Rick came and he talked to us, about 40 people in the room, so kind of a small setting. And, and Rick was talking to us, and I don't know if you know this or not, but about five years ago, Rick had a son who committed suicide. That's a pretty big deal. You're a famous Christian pastor, and yet that level of suffering still visits your home. And Rick walked, through, walked us through that pain of that whole circumstance. And here's what he said. This was the thing that just stood out to me. And I said, man, this is why I came to California for this meeting. He said this. He said, he said, I have learned so much through pain in my life. Pleasure has taught me nothing. That's worth chewing on. That's worth chewing on. And so that's Paul. Paul says, I've learned to be content. And when you walk through his life, you can see that there's that, that whole process that he's gone through. So translation, Paul says, circumstances are not dictating my contentment. Circumstances. And in verse 12, he really drives the point home a couple times. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living or in plenty or in one. He, he drives that point home several times in that little passage. It's, I, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have a little. It doesn't really matter, guys. I'm telling you, I know how to be content on whichever end of that spectrum I'm, I'm in. Most of us are looking for the positive end of the spectrum, and then we'll be content. And Paul says, no, I, I've learned to be content anywhere in there. And notice what he says. I've learned the secret. It's just not something, again, that just happens magically. It's not just something that you just wake up and it's, and it's like diamonds on the ground. Oh, here's one. It's something that has to be learned. It's secret. It's hidden. One of the things that I love about God's character is, in Scripture, He tells us, guys, you've got to dig for truth. You've got to work at this. Somewhere in there, I think God has this process of us learning how to, we say this as Christians all the time, how do I die to myself, my own wants, my own desires, and all that stuff so that I can live for him? And part of that dying process is it's work. You've got to dig for stuff. And the harder you work for, I don't know about you, but I've found this to be true in my life. The harder that I worked for something and I received the reward, the harder I worked, the more I appreciated the reward. The things that were given to me didn't mean nearly as much to me. But if I work hard for it, it means a whole lot to me. And I think that's what the secret thing is here, the secret sauce. You've got to dig for it. If I'm not content in this particular passage, then where is that contentment found? And Paul says, I found the secret. And then he reveals it. He reveals it in verse 13. That's another one of those spoilers. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Paul learned that through Christ, he can be content in whatever his circumstances are, whether he has a little or he has a lot. Paul learned that in Christ, he could do that. Is he enough? Is he enough? I hope that question haunts you in a good way. Because when you leave here today and you go out there and you start seeing 
things in, in the world that, that sort of capture your eye and, and, and you're left wanting for more, then I hope that the Holy Spirit brings back to your mind that singular question. But is he enough? Because it helps to keep our minds stayed on him. It helps to keep our eyes focused on him. So I'm going to assume that when you went around the table and you gave your number, I'm going to assume that you gave a number somewhere less than 10. Fair enough? I'm going to assume that you gave a number somewhere less than 10. So that means that all of us are in some level of discontent at some point. So I'm going to walk you through and ask you a few questions. These are heartfelt questions, and I'll tell you a couple of experiences from my own life that that I hope will illuminate these things. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that I really want you to think about in your heart. Guys, here's the thing. One of the reasons that I came, to, uh, that I, I began to passionately pursue Christ in my life, one of the reasons that I did that was because I, I, was, I was challenged with a question from a preacher one time, and the question was this. He, he, he's like, where are you in the Lord? Do you need to rededicate your life? And I was in a state in my life where I had to rededicate my life at that time. And he said, he said guys, listen, let me tell you something. You can run from God, or excuse me, you can run from your family, you can run from even yourself, you can run from your spouse, whatever, whoever you can run from and you can hide, but you cannot run and hide from God. He knows exactly where you are in your heart. And that was the convicting thing that God used to make me say that from this moment forward, I will pursue him because he already knows. I can't hide anything in my heart from him. So when I ask you these questions, you can lie to the guys around your table if you want to. I don't highly recommend that. It's not why we're here, but you cannot lie to God. You can't. So you got to deal with these questions and ask yourself, where am I with these things? Here's number one. Number one, are you content with your financial situation? I mean, are you content with your pay level right now? If this was all the money that you were ever going to make in your life, is that okay? You got peace of mind with that? I told you guys, they asked me, they said, you know, what'd you do prior to becoming the executive pastor here? And I said, I owned a business for 24 years. And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something, guys. My, my business life was a crucible for me, something that God just beat the snot out of me over. I was not a great businessman. I, I just wasn't. But God used that business to reveal things in my heart that needed to be revealed. That, that's what a crucible was for. Because I thought when I got in business, and I, and I got, my, I, it was a family business, and when I got in business, I thought, I thought, this is it, great. I, my parents had done well with the business, and I thought, well, I'll just keep riding that pony, and, and we'll, be, we'll be fine. Funny thing happened on the way to fine. I, I, I was, well, I just wasn't very good at it. I struggled, and I struggled, and I struggled to make money in that business. Dirty little secret among most small business people is they almost all struggle and struggle and struggle, but they don't tell each other. We go to conventions and we go to all these things and we look nice and we talk big and we do all these things. But at the, at, at the end of the day, you go back to your hotel room at the convention and you go, I am such a loser. These other guys are really crushing me. And God used those circumstances in my heart to show me something. Guys, I was greedy. I did the thing that all Christian businessmen do. I would say, yeah, I really want to make some money because I want to use that money and, and, and donate to the kingdom and help grow the kingdom from financial support. And there was an element of truth to that. But the truth is, I wanted money. What, what I really wanted was what money could buy me. It wasn't about the money. What it was really about was I needed money as a scorecard. Because I knew that if I was making a lot of money, it meant that I was winning. 
It meant that I was valuable. It might even mean that people wanted me around. And, and I had to go there. And here's why I had to go there. We see, my, 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 my parents uh, uh, divorced when I was three. And between my parents, my mom and my dad, they were married eight times. My mom five, my dad three. And one of the husbands that my mom had, uh, he, he was my stepfather from the time that I was five years old until I was 11 years old. So, so get the picture. Those are fairly formative years, wouldn't you agree? Five years old to 11 years old. And, and I remember at 11 years old, when, when my stepfather was leaving our home for the final time and he and my mom were getting a divorce, he asked me to come into our family dining room and he sat me down on a little corner table and he did something very, very significant. He knelt down right in front of me and got eyeball to eyeball with me. I, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but it, this is what he did. And he grabbed my hands and he put them in his hands and he looked me dead in the eye. Now I want you to understand something, guys. This was a man that when he walked in the room, when he was living in our home, I would shake. I was afraid of him. I was really afraid of him. And so he grabs my hands and he looks me in the eye. So you can imagine my 11-year-old self, what I was feeling at that moment. Here's what he said to me. He said, I, I want to tell you something. I never liked you. And he said, let me tell you why I never liked you. He said, when your mom and I were first getting together, you were, he, he didn't give me the age, but I remembered I was five. He said, one time your dad came and picked you up and took you fishing. And when you came back home from that fishing trip, he said, all you could do was talk about your dad and what a great time you had fishing with your dad. What a great day it was. He said, so, so I decided at that time that, that I knew that what I was going to do is take you fishing so that you and I could develop that kind of relationship. Now, guys, I, I don't remember going fishing with my dad at five. I don't remember that trip at all. I do remember the fishing trip with my stepfather. We went down to the Ohio River, and it was a rainy, misty day, and we were walking along the banks of the Ohio, and it was sometime in the fall because it was kind of cold, and it was muddy, and it was slippery. We were right beside the Ohio River. I'm five, maybe six years old, guys. I was scared to death I was going to slip and fall into the Ohio River, so I was complaining the whole time I was with him, and he took that personally. And so he told me on his knees, looking me in the eye, he said, so on that day I decided that I was not going to treat you well because I rejected him. And there are things that happened to me and that during those times that I, I've only told my wife because they hurt. It took me until I was 40 years old to finally figure out that everything that I had done in my life to that point was to pursue one thing. I wanted to hear that man say that I had value because everything that he had done in those five or six years of my life that he lived in my home told me that I was not worth the air I was breathing. And I didn't know that the rest of my life I would be chasing value or worth. Somebody please tell me you're glad I'm in the room. I figured it out one day because there was a Friday afternoon. I was 40. We already had, I don't know how many kids, eight, I don't know. <laughs> There's a number. <laughs> okay. We were loading into our 15-passenger van, and we were ironically going to go down and see my dad who lives down at Nolan Lake, and we love doing that. Kids love it. We all love it. Go down there and hang up with my dad and my stepmom. And so it's a beautiful day, and I'm piling the van, and I got a letter in the mail that I'm getting ready to read. Everybody's in the van except for me and my wife, and I open up the letter, and it's from my stepfather. 
who was living in Alabama at the time. I read two lines of that letter. Guys, I was in a great mood. I'm just telling you, it was just one of those zippity doo dah days, right? I read two lines of that letter, and I just busted out sobbing. And my wife looked at me, and she said, what? What's happened? I just handed her the letter. Because in two lines, he said words I'd been waiting my whole life to hear. I'm proud of you. My dad had told me many times he was proud of me. I've had lots of people in my life, my wife especially, telling me that she was proud of me, and my kids have told me I've had all of that. I can't tell you the weight that was lifted off of my soul at 40 years old when that man told me he was proud of me. Ironically, here's what he was proud of me for. The Southeast Outlook had written an article about me and my big family, and he saw all those kids and that joy, and he said, I'm proud of you for that, which is something that really matters. Why would I tell you that story in the midst of asking you, are you okay with your financial position? And the answer is because the scorecard that I was keeping was not about money. Money was just the indicator of having personal value because someone else sort of robbed it from me, if you will. And I knew that if that scorecard was high enough that I could be content. So you may not be satisfied with your financial situation, but it may have nothing to do with money. It's got a lot to do with value. And my question for you is, is he enough? Because, spoiler alert, Jesus gave his life to prove your value. You may not even understand that or believe it. I'm just stating it to you as a fact. And as you study scripture and as you discover the secret of living in Christ, you will learn Jesus is enough. And you really do have that kind of value. God showed me through all of that that I was greedy, that I had pride, that I sought prestige, that I really was looking for self-reliance versus trusting God and that whole self-worth issue of my value. And here's what I learned. You know what? It's okay to strive for more. There's no question about that as long as the scorecard is right. There's a reason that in Scripture, I think Paul the Apostle uses athletics as an example. But if you look at what he uses as athletics, he uses running and running is really, a, is really a competition with yourself. What's my personal best? Am I becoming everything that I was created to be? As opposed to some sort of an athletic competition where there must be a loser and there must be a winner because we have to have bragging rights over one another. And here's the thing. When the scorecard is how I compare myself with other people, I'm not biblical. The Bible says we're foolish when we compare ourselves with ourselves. It's not the scorecard. It's fun. But it creates discontent because I'm not good enough compared to you. And the issue there is, are you good enough for the creator, the one that created you, the one that created you in, in your mother's womb? The one that says in Ephesians 2.10 that you were created before time began to do good works for him. That's the scorecard. How do I measure up against what he created me uniquely to be? I'm not you. You're not me. Don't compare your success with me. I try my best not to compare my success with you, but I fail at it. Oftentimes, are you content with your job? One of them was money. Second one is job. And I, I, I put that one separately. And the reason that I put that one separately is because so many times we, we use our job as the same thing. It, it shows that I've got prestige. It shows that I've got value. One of the things that I learned when I was a recruiter way back when, it may not be the same today. I've been at it for a long time. But here's what I learned. The banking industry knew that there was prestige in being a banker. 
And the dirty little secret was, was that relative to other people in the marketplace doing the same type of a job at a different institution, they could pay less because the title in banking meant more. Does that make sense? There was some prestige about being in the banking business that had monetary value that the banks didn't have to pay through a particular paycheck. Now, that sounds sinister. I don't mean it to. But it was just an observation that I made that the way of the marketplace is, that's just the way that it worked out in the supply and demand world. Some people wanted the value of the title more than they wanted the remuneration of the paycheck. Why? They weren't content unless they had that. One of the things I've learned in my career, <laughs> there are two things you never mess with in people's vocation. <laughs> Number one is their title. Titles mean things. Number two is their office. You go moving people's offices around, oh my goodness, those are fighting words. <laughs> I know that because we just moved about, I don't know, 200 people over in our office building over here, you know, from one place to another. Whew, I stayed out of that. I, that's where I learned to delegate. <laughs> tell you, I'm going to tell this story as quickly as I can because for some of you, you'll resonate with it. For others, uh, you may not. But let, let me just say this. Uh, a few months ago, there was a particular department here at, at the church, our professional counseling center, that we decided that we were going to transition out of our, of our church. And that was a four-year process. There was a lot of prayers, a lot of discussion. There are a lot of reasons for it. Uh, but nonetheless, we, we decided as elders that that's what we were going to do. So here it is. It's the day that we're going to sit down with all of our professional counseling staff. And, and, and it was about 15 meetings in a row where we were going to tell them, okay, here. They knew we were talking about it and all that stuff. But we were going to give them the details. And so we sat down one after another, 15 people. And we had to tell them what was going on with their futures. And some of it was highly, highly in question. And so you can imagine the myriad of emotional responses and so forth. And so we're handling that. And so we, we get this one guy that comes in here and, and he sits down across the table and he's this fellow that's just got this perpetual smile on his face. And, 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 and we give him the news and everything and he, he's a little teary, you know, and he's got some tears sort of leaking out the sides of his eyes and so forth. He said, guys, I, I, I want you to know I'll be fine, but this has to be hard on you guys. How are you all doing? And he was just as sincere as he could be. And I had, I had to choke back tears. That shocked me. Because I, I, there's a couple things I knew about that particular guy. One of them was this, that his wife was facing another major surgery in just a couple of weeks. That she was going to be laid out for a long time. Very expensive for their family. And the other thing that I knew about him was that he was the caretaker of his, I think, 40-year-old brother who has cerebral palsy. And he lives this life of struggle. And I just told him, hey, we're not sure about your, your job future here. And he asked about me. Now, that's a picture of contentment in a horrible job situation. That spoke volumes to me. Are you content with your possessions? Because one of the things that I had to deal with along the way uh, of this journey with uh, all these kids and all that, that, that kind of stuff, and knowing that I had this business and I knew that this business was supposed to be bringing me value and all those types of things and I was greedy, was one of the things that the Lord kept saying to me was, can you be content? And my wife and I at the time, we had up to 10 kids in the home together. We lived in a house that was 1,100 square feet on the main floor, 900 square feet in the basement, so 2,000 square feet in total. My wife had somehow figured out how to make that house fit all of us in there, six bedrooms, three baths. Don't ask, I don't know, she did it. 
But I got to be honest with you, for a long time, I would, I would struggle in my prayer life with the Lord. Father, I need a bigger house. And the Lord would say, why? Can't you be content? Don't you all fit? Yeah, but God, this is... It, again, it was, I, was, I was not putting out the right image. I wasn't living in the right kind of house. One day, my son, uh, who, my oldest son was 14 years old at the time, and he had a friend who's, who lived in Anchorage. Anchorage, 1,100 square feet. Get the picture? She pulls up into the driveway. I'll never forget this, because it was one of those days where the Lord said, see, I got this. She pulled up in the driveway. She got out of her car, and she comes, and I kid you not, guys, here's what she did. So she gets out of the car. She stands over the side of her car. She looks at me. She looks at the house. So this is where you live. Sure is, and we all fit. <laughs> you know, I knew what was going on in her mind. I was so grateful, though. that I felt like that the Lord had given me a moment there to where I was just fine if I never moved ever. Now, the Lord saw fit a couple few years later to get us to a, a bigger place and to have a little bit of a breathing room. But in that, that moment, I really felt like, I mean, it was a God hug. There was contentment in my soul. Didn't matter where I lived. He was enough. He was enough. Are you content with your marital status? If you're single, are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? What if that's it? What if you never find the one? Can you be okay? Or will you live a life of quiet desperation and find yourself filling that hole in your life with something that's false just to fill you up? Or will you fix your eyes somewhere else and begin to rise above that? That's a hard battle. Because everything else... In, our society tells you you're not whole unless you have a life mate, a wife. If you're married, let me ask you a question. It's an important question for you to answer. Are you content with your wife? Or is there something missing? It's a hard question to answer. Most of you know Job 31.1 says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon another woman to lust after her. Where your eyes are matter a whole lot with your level of contentment. I found a scripture in Song of Songs chapter 4 years ago that I, I just love because, you know, if you, you, you read Song of Psalms and it's got a bunch of metaphorical meaning and so on and so forth, but one of the things that I pulled out of it as I was reading and teaching on marriage issues and that kind of thing was that the, the, the lover, the male here is looking at the beloved and he's seeing her in all of her physical glory. And here's what he says. He says, I, I look at you and you are lovely. I find no flaw in you. And I remember when I read that scripture, I said, oh my goodness, that's the way I want to see my wife. I find no flaw in you. And I made a decision way back then that I was going to fix my eyes on her. And it wasn't about her physical beauty. Here's what I know. She's going to grow old. And I'm not exactly <laughs> Mr. Poster for a, a hunk of a man. 
So it's unfair for me to demand of her things that I personally can't fulfill. <laughs> and I expanded it, not just to the way that she might look, but what are those other things in my, that, that others might label as, isn't that irritating? Does my wife do things that irritate me? Yes. And then as soon as that, that feeling starts rising up in my soul, can I tell you what I do? That scripture comes to my brain because I memorized it years ago. And I say, in you, I find no flaw. Because I know that the enemy of my soul is trying to rob me of contentment from the woman that God gave me in my youth, who I adore. Why would I let any thought of discontent come in and rob me of her? I can't. I can't. God took me from eight broken marriages to a 34-year marriage because God taught me that Ephesians 5 is true. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her. In other words, he died for her. It's on me to look at my wife and find no flaw in her. Men, are you content with your wife? Where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? Lastly, are you, uh, uh, in, in the, those questions, are you content with your children? Because let me tell you something. Here's something that I've learned recently, and, I, and I'll turn the corner and wrap this up. Here's something I've learned recently. No one prepares you to parent adult children. The church does a great job of preparing you to have children, to have infants, and, and to have uh, toddlers and even teenagers, but no one prepares you to parent adult children. And when they become adults, the roles change. Do I have an amen? And suddenly the values and all those things that you pour into your children are now theirs, and they're testing the fringes, and, and you still want to raise them as though they were those little babies that you carried home from the hospital. It does not work that way. And so suddenly these questions start arising. And what I realized, can I tell you what I've realized? I've realized that the values and the dreams and the visions that I was putting on my children as they were growing up, I thought that I was trying to instill in them great vision. But you know what I was doing? I was putting my vision on their lives and they cannot handle that weight. And I would find myself disappointed in my children because they didn't choose what I wanted them to choose. That's a tough road. Are you content with your kids? You see how you can go down the road because your eyes are in the wrong place and it creates discontent. We turn the corner. The book of Ecclesiastes is one of the greatest books we could have when it comes to discontentment. And let me tell you why. Solomon had everything. He had absolutely, there was nothing that he denied of himself to be able to partake in in life. Nothing. He experienced it all. Women, riches, uh, wisdom, just anything and everything. Palaces and territory, running country, the country, the whole nine yards. Here's the thing. You need to read the book of Ecclesiastes and go from the first to the last. Don't ever stop in the middle of Ecclesiastes and pause. You'll get depressed. Read the whole thing from front to finish because he starts out meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Think of that scene in Toy Story where Buzz Lightyear is sitting down and having tea and going, give me another one, Mrs. Noosebaum. It's all meaningless. <laughs> That's funny if you have kids that age. But I, I did. I had kids that age. But you got to get all the way to the end of the book because at the end of the book, Solomon says something that's very, very important. And he says this, chapter 12, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of mankind. 
Way back in the Old Testament, the key to contentment is written. Is he enough? Fear God. Love Jesus. Obey his commands. Be a man of his word. Contentment will come. So Paul gave us the answer to the whole thing in Philippians 4.13. He said, it's through Christ that I can do all of these things. But it takes effort. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is one of my favorite life verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice is a painful thing. Holy and pleasing to God is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what is your mind set on? Wherever your eyes are set, your mind's going to go. It's what you're going to want. You're going to lust after. And he says, don't be conformed to the image of this world. What are you looking at, guys? And I'm not talking about pornography. That could be one of the things. I'm talking about all the other stuff. What about that Dodge Ram truck? Did you know the screens are 12 inches now? <laughs> wow. Whatever those things are. Jesus demonstrated humility. Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, whatever it was that he was going through, in this case for Jesus, it was the cross. But Jesus knew beyond the cross what he was going after. And so the key to contentment is to look beyond your current circumstances and see what the ultimate glory is. Where are you going? Christian, where are you going? And if you're not yet in Christ, this can be yours. And the peace that you so seek after, the hope that you so want, it can be yours. It's in Christ, as Paul the Apostle said. It's through him that I can do these things. It's through him. So here's, here's the conclusion that I've got. You can be content in abundance or lack if you're in Christ Jesus. So the question is, are you in Christ? Have you decided yet that you can no longer be on the throne of your life? Have you decided yet that only he can forgive you of your sin and remove that burden and then allow you to walk in the freedom that is only found in him so that you can then follow him in baptism and be raised to newness of life and then reflect his image and his glory to a world that so desperately needs to see hope? And I think that oftentimes the way they see hope is when they see us go through circumstances and yet we can endure and persevere with the joy of the Lord. And when you persevere through those trials and those troubles and so on, you know what the book of James says? He says, I need you to do that. I need you to persevere through those things so that you can be mature, complete, not lacking anything. Doesn't that sound like contentment? To endure a trial with great joy. Paul started the whole passage in Philippians 4 with rejoicing. He says, I rejoice. And, and there's, a, there's an element, there's an inference of thankfulness there. Your road to contentment in Christ is to be grateful for what God has given you. Several years ago, uh, I, I went through a pretty tough time in my business. You know, I told you about that, right? And I was going, so one, my wife and I went out to a restaurant one night and I had been taught this trick and I used it. And I got out a yellow notepad and we were going through a tough time. I said, honey, in the next quick as we can, top of mind, let's think of every single benefit that we can think of that's going to come out of this trial. 
And I mean, within a matter of five minutes, we had listed 50 things on that paper that God could use because of the trial to grow us up. Not the least of which was it caused us to have to cry out to him and watch his hand move. I couldn't control it. That's a benefit to know that God loves you enough that he'll move on your behalf. So being thankful, what's the good that can come out of your current circumstance? Don't compare yourselves with other people. The Bible tells us not to have jealousy and envy and strife. And that's what happens in the world of comparison. That's exactly what happens. So I'm going to ask you to go to your tables now, and I'm going to ask you to answer some, some questions. And here's, here's some questions for you. Where do you seek contentment that's outside of God? When you're discontent, where are you seeking contentment? And maybe another question that you might ask is, why is it so hard to be content? What's driving that lack of contentment? And here's the last question I want you to consider. Is, you got your number? Your contentment number? What's the one thing that you can do today? What's the one thing that you can do today to move that number one more north? What's the one thing? Not asking, if you, if you said you were a three or a four, not asking you to jump to 10. If you're a three or four, I'm asking you to move to four or five. What's the one thing? Let me pray for you. Father, I'm so grateful that you could give us this day to come together. And in this season that was, that it can be uh, driving so much discontent, so many pressures of life, and, and yet joy to the world, the Lord has come. It's, and we're not there. It can create this gap of we feel less than. I thank you that we have a morning here at the beginning of this season to stop and say, no, I, I, want, I want to grow in my contentment and be like the Apostle Paul. So I pray that that's what happens around these tables, Father, is that we can take one more step toward contentment and that your joy would become resident in all of us here and we would be more contented men. God, thank you for men that want to study your word and become like you. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.